Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 1. We introduced this series last week. We're going to kind of uh, like officially sort of jump into the text here this week. And it's just going to be 10 words. That's all we're going to talk about this morning. So if you would, uh, if you would stand, if you're comfortable and able to do that while we read from God's word. This is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want to invite us to think some very big thoughts about God just from the first four words of that sentence. That's our task today. So let's pray and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. God, that we can know who you are what you're like, because you've chosen to reveal that to us, is an unbelievable gift of your grace. So this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to grasp to whatever measure is capable in our brains, just how majestic and glorious and wondrous you are. God, give us attention and and focus and the ability to kind of stretch and expand the capacities of our hearts and minds. God, help us to see who you are. God, would that give us a healthy but a right perspective perspective on who we are. And as we put those two things together, God, would you help us to see just how glorious Jesus is? I pray that in his matchless name. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, I want to, you guys are my favorite service. I said that all three services. Yeah. Um, I want to try something different today. That doesn't mean that we're going to do this every time we take communion in this style, but rather than passing out the elements at the end of the service like we would typically do, um, when we get to the portion of the service we're actually going to take communion, I don't want us to be distracted by passing the trays around. So if you're someone who said that you would help us distribute communion, would you come grab these and uh, pass those out now? Once once you've got those, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've been saved by God's grace, we invite you to take communion with us later in the service, even if this isn't your church home. Um, so take a little two stack of cups and then just set it on the ground somewhere where you're not going to kick it over. And when it's time to turn our attention to those, uh, we can grab them. As I was preparing this over the course of the week, really over the course of the last two weeks, thinking about this sermon, there was a particular, uh, kind of mental tape running in my mind. And it's from my days as a lifeguard at Clayview, um, in high school and college, over the summers, I would lifeguard there. And on maybe like three or four nights a summer, the, the right mix of families or kids would be present in the last hour or the last 30 minutes of the pool being open. Usually that meant that they were a little bit older kids and they were swim team members. And the lifeguards would do everything we needed to do to kind of have the pool ready to close. And then we would we would spend like the last 45 minutes of the night playing sharks and minnows in the diving well with the kids that were present. Um, And sharks and minnows at Clayview worked a very specific way. You were only out or you only went from being a minnow to a shark if you got tagged above water. And so the diving well was like, I don't know, 13, 12 feet deep. And the way that the game would work is that if you were one of the minnows, you would be standing, you know, a few steps away from the edge, when it was time to go, you would run, dive all the way down to the bottom, 
swim along the bottom of the pool, hope not to get caught, and then you would touch the bottom of the wall and like work your way up the side uh, so that you wouldn't get caught. And inevitably, the same scene would play itself out every time we played this game. And that would be like, there'd be like a nine-year-old standing on the side, getting ready to go, and they are taking massive gulps of air, like, <gasps> like trying to make themselves hyperventilate or something to get as much air into their lungs as possible because it wasn't just that you were going to dive in and swim across. Like you were going to dive in and you were going to be met by someone at the bottom and you would have to do like evasive maneuvers in the water and like zigzag back and forth to not have someone grab hold of your arm or your leg and drag you to the surface and tag you. We are not going to swim in the shallow end this morning. I said, we're only going to look at four words and we're going to think some very big thoughts. And so if you need to sort of steal yourself for like the depths of God's being, now would be the time to do that. The passage that Ben read from Job as we began our service is kind of a doorway into like these deep thoughts about who God is. It's also a window into who we are. And as we introduced this series last week, we gave ourselves four truths to kind of ground ourselves in every Sunday when we come in and do this. That the condition, sin, is more urgent than we acknowledge. That the culmination, Jesus, is more glorious than our hearts can conceive. The conclusion in eternity will be more satisfying than we dare to dream. And the one who is in control is wondrous beyond comprehension. It's that fourth one that I want us to dwell on this morning. When you read scripture with young children, they don't have sort of all of the framework and knowledge and filters in their mind that we do. And so they will ask surprisingly profound questions. Oftentimes we read scripture and we go kind of quickly because we have all this background stuff. And so we just blitz through things because we already think we know the answer. This morning, we're going to just four words and we're going to ask all the questions and think about their answer. In the beginning... God. And there's a whole lot to think about there. A early church father named Novation, he wrote a book about the Trinity. And in the introduction to that, he says this, in all our meditations upon the qualities and content of God, we pass beyond our power of fit conception. At the contemplation and utterance of his majesty, all eloquence is rightly dumb. All mental effort is feeble. For God is greater than the mind itself. His greatness cannot be conceived. No, for could we conceive of his greatness, he would be less than the human mind which could form the conception. He goes on. He's greater than all language and no statement can express him. Indeed, if any statement could express him, he would be less than human speech which could by such a statement gather up all that he is. All our thoughts about him will be less than he and our loftiest utterances will be trivialities in comparison with him. Novation then goes on to write a whole book trying to take limited human verbiage and describe an infinite God. That's what we're going to do this morning to the best that our brains and words can do. And in order to help us with that, I'm going to bring in more quotes from books and scholars than normal. The reason for that being there are really smart people who have said things far better than I ever could and they've thought things that are deeper than my brain has the ability to think. And so we're gonna start with the bigness of God, then we'll move to the smallness of humanity and we'll end with the glory of Jesus. 
Now, obviously, in the beginning, God does not happen in a vacuum. We've got pages of scripture behind that statement. And so we'll also invite in the rest of scripture to help inform what we're saying. But there are some very important truths about the nature of God that we can draw by simply stopping long enough to think hard about these words. And so we're going to build a chart. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you were to try to represent that visually, this is what it would look like. All of time and creation inside the gray box, there's obviously something before that. Then God creates and you've got everything and all of created time. And just for the sake of clarification, the place where that crosses is not me saying how long I think there is until Jesus comes back. We just picked a random spot, okay? I don't need an argument about where that little cross should have gone. Um, In the beginning, God created. Nothing before that, time, matter, space begins there at Genesis 1-1 and continues forward and scripture tells us that at some point this place will come to an end. So, if you were to start reading in scripture with a small child in the beginning, God, they would say, pause, when did God start? And you would need to look at them and say, well, God wasn't created. He never needed to be created because he's always existed. And so you'd have at the left side of the chart here, uncreated God. Everything else in the universe has a definable origin. God does not. And as soon as you say that to a child, you've done something in their brain that they were not prepared for. You've you've inserted a category that they didn't have before, which is that something could be uncreated. Right? Even children intuitively understand that stuff has a starting point. They've got toys at some point they can read. They see on the bottom, made in China. At some point in your child's life, you have a difficult conversation when the reality of endpoints enter in. And you've got to explain that stuff stops to exist as well. God is uncreated. And we don't really age out of the difficulty of understanding what it is that God is uncreated or all of these other big thoughts about God. How do I know that that's the case? Well, because most of us, when we think about God, we say, well, he's he's like me, but better. Nope, he's not. He's completely unlike you. And by his grace, you are kind of like him. And the order of that makes a world of difference. God is not you plussed a little bit into like the 2.0 version. That's not who God is. He is uncreated. He has always existed. Psalm 90, he is from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 93, you, oh God, are from everlasting. So when did God begin? He didn't. And it's hard to fully grasp. But we've got all these filters. And so we live in a society that's monotheistic. The general prevailing notion in America is that there is one God. And no matter how you think about that God, most of us begin with the framework that he would be uncreated. In polytheistic cultures, where the prevailing thought is that there are multiple gods, all of those multitude of gods have origin stories. Greek mythology, Roman mythology. Well, how did Zeus come to be? And you can literally tell the story of this is Zeus's origin. God, Yahweh, is not like that. He's completely different. Okay, so you're working with your child, and they say, when did God begin? And you say, he didn't, he was uncreated. And they would logically ask, well, then when does he end? 
And the answer to that is that he is eternal. And so there's the line on the bottom. That goes on forever in both directions. That's what the little arrows mean. He's always existed from before the box and he will always exist after the box. The theological definition of God's eternal nature is to say that God in his being has no beginning, end, or succession of moments, which we'll get to in a moment. The thing that he created in the gray box there could cease to exist, but God will continue on. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says this, from vanishing point to vanishing point would be another way to say that God is from everlasting to everlasting. The mind looks backward into time till dim past vanishes, then turns to look into the future till the thought and imagination collapse from exhaustion and God is at both points, unaffected by either. As I was trying to think about how we could like wrap our minds around this, uh, this is the best I can do. Go 10 days into the future. You're no closer to the end of God than you are now. Go 10 days into the past. You're no closer to the beginning of God than you are right now. Throw a bunch of zeros on. Go a million days into the future. You're no closer to the end of God than you are right now. Go a million days into the past. You're no closer to the beginning of God than you are right now. Why? Because he's eternal and you cannot reach the limit on either side. But he's also unbounded by the constraints of time. He knows no succession of moments. Succession of moments is all we know. At some point last night, you went to bed. There was a string of time where you slept. You woke up, you got out of bed. That was a moment. You ate some breakfast. There was a moment. You brushed your teeth. You wrestled your children so that they would brush their teeth. You got everybody dressed. You got in the car and you arrived here at church. God's interaction with time is fundamentally different than that. We're told in Psalm 90 verse four that a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. Second Peter three verse eight, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like one day. His relationship with time is such that, take a deep breath and dive in the pool, He's fully present at every moment throughout all time in every moment throughout all time. Ben told me that I should be able to explain that to a six-year-old. That would be hard. <laughs> he's, he, he's fully present. He's fully conscious of every moment of all time in every moment at all times. No beginning, no end, no succession of moments. So God's relationship to time, well, he created it and he holds it. He acts within it, but he's outside of it. He's fully present at every moment, but he's fully present at every moment in every moment. He stands above time, yet he enters into it. He's eternal. That's why God can say in Isaiah 46, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet. And he's always right about the end from the beginning. Why? Well, because at the beginning, he's also at the end. Our conception of God's 
working in time. Like sometimes we'll say, well, he already knows, you know, but we sort of think like he's 10 minutes ahead of us and he already knows the outworking of the decision that we're going to make right now. No, he's, he's present fully in every moment all the time. Okay, so he's uncreated and he is eternal, but in the beginning, God would appear to, to let us know that he would be independent from whatever he makes in Genesis 1.1. So two arrows there. One, all of creation is dependent upon God, but then the dotted arrow up top, he is not dependent upon his creation. He's independent. Sometimes that quality of God is called his self-existence, and the definition of that is that God does not need creation to fulfill any void or longing within himself. God has life in himself. He draws unending energy from himself. Everything that exists flows from himself. So it would follow logically, what could creation possibly give back to him that would fulfill a need that he has? The answer is nothing. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens and he sees that there's a temple to an unknown God and he turns to address these people and he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by humans hand, human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. What could he possibly need? He's giving you everything. What could you turn around and give back to him? He's entirely independent from that which he created. And yet, he's present and active within what he has created. He does not need what he has created in order to survive, yet it is to his glory that he acts within it. And he does not need what he created in order to survive, but the things that he created can glorify him. He's not like a deistic image of God where he creates and then he steps back and just kind of lets that thing do what he wants. No, it's to his glory that he creates. He's independent, but it's active in the midst of it. That's who God is. Now, at this point, it would be fair to ask the question, well, what is that uncreated, eternal, independent God like? It's a good question. And the second verse of Genesis lets us know at least a little bit about him. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So we know something from Genesis chapter one, verse two, that God is, is or has a spirit, like it would be hard to articulate that exactly off of that verse, but take the rest of scripture. At Jesus' baptism, there's a father that speaks from heaven, the spirit that descends like a dove, and you've got the son sitting in the water. Okay, so the logical question there would be, okay, the, the spirit appeared to be present way back in Genesis, but when did the father and the son appear? Well, Jesus gives us the answer to that in John 17. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world was created. So, when were Father and Son? Before the box started there. Again, in John 17, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Father, Son, Spirit, we could say that the God exists, that God exists in Trinity. All three uncreated, all three eternal, 
All three are God, which means they're independent from creation. And the historical way to articulate that is to say that the Trinity exists in a unity that does not confound their persons nor divide their essence. The Trinity exists in such a way that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit aren't confused into one amorphous blob that is God. So you don't confound their persons, but you also don't divide their essence. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are of one substance is the way that we say that. They're co-eternal, co-equal, co-glorious, co-majestic, each uncreated, each immeasurable, each almighty, three persons, one substance, unity in the Trinity, the Trinity in unity. So that's what he's like. Run that by your six-year-old. Okay, but like, what is, but, but what's he like, you know? Tim, you're like this. What is he like? Well, Scripture's gonna tell us a lot about what this God is like, the moral qualities of who he is. In fact, we'll start to talk about that next week when we do the second six words in this verse. But the theological way to talk about God's person is that he is infinite. Now, we think of infinite in terms of time, but we already said he's eternal. God's infinity is that he is without limit in his being, nature, character, and attributes. That is to say that every aspect of God's very being knows no limit. Another way to say that is to say that he is measureless in his qualities. Jen Wilkin, author of the book, None Like Him, says it this way. His timeless, or his limitless, underlies all of his attributes. His power, knowledge, love, and mercy are not merely great, they are infinitely, immeasurably so. No one can place any aspect of who God is on a scale or against a yardstick. You can't measure it. In the book of Job, Job loses everything that he has. He's sitting on a heap of uh, dust and ashes, and he's in grief and mourning. And some friends travel to see him. And you sort of get the sense that the journey must have been long and uncomfortable because they're kind of cranky when they get there to him. And Zophar, one of Job's friends in chapter 11 says, can you find the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. Where, or what can you know? His measure is longer than the earth and broader than the seas. God is not limited by time or space. He's not limited by capacity or capability. He's not subject to the limits of energy and fatigue. Everything that scripture says that God is, God is infinitely. So the way that Corey and I tried to represent that with those lines, they're like faders on a soundboard, except for they don't have an end and there are words on there and they're pretty small, so they're hard to read. But God is love and he's love in infinite measure. He's grace and he's grace in infinite measure. He's mercy and he's mercy in infinite measure. He's just and he's just in infinite measure. Holy in infinite measure. He's good in infinite measure. Psalm 145 verse three, his greatness is unsearchable. A.W. Tozer again. Our concepts of measurement embrace mountains and men, atoms and stars, gravity, energy, numbers, speed, but never God. We cannot speak of measure or amount or size or weight and at the same time be speaking of God. For these tell us of degrees and there are no degrees in God. 
And maybe the last logical question here would be, well, what is he like now? If that's what he was like before he created everything, what is he like today? And the answer to that is that he is unchanging. So whatever he was like in eternity past, he is still like that today, and he will be tomorrow, and he will be 10 years from now, and he will be a million days from now, and he will be forever. God is unchanging in his being, his nature, his purposes, and his promises. He is perfectly, eternally unchanging in his infinite, independent, eternal, uncreated nature. Psalm 102, long ago you established the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. All of them will wear out like clothing. You will change them like a garment and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years know no end. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just pause there for a moment. You take all of that and this idea of God being unchanging, and it's both self-evident and incredibly wonderful. It's self-evident because if God could change, that would suggest that he was lacking in something before. Like if God could become more patient, it would suggest that he was impatient at some time. If God could become more loving, it would suggest that he was unloving at some point. That's not true. He can't change because he's already perfect. And that's wonderful news because it means that God is not going to shift in opinion or purpose and thereby pull the rug out from underneath you. Like he's not going to arrive one day and say, you know what? I've been around for a long time. I've sort of evolved a little bit and I'm not satisfied with the Jesus thing anymore. And then rip salvation out from underneath you as though he's now more enlightened or something. That's not who God is. God is incomprehensibly grand. And that is our best attempt to represent that in visual form. He's uncreated, eternal, independent, Trinitarian, infinite, unchanging. Now I want to make a similar chart, but about humanity. There's you, that little black dot. Again, we just picked a random spot to put the black dot. I'm not representing your time on a timeline, but you are created. Jen Wilkin begins the book, None Like Him, with this astute observation. On the day I was born, the doctor who delivered me inscribed my birth records with a firm hand, seven pounds, 11 ounces, 21 inches. It was the first legally attested evidence that I was not God. Created measurable. That should be all you need to know. Before you even can talk about your imperfections, the very fact that you were created and you can be measured means that you are not God. And we can rebel against that reality or we can enjoy the grace of the uniqueness and intentionality with which the uncreated one purposely created us. Psalm 139 tells us that he knit us together in our mother's womb and he had laid out all the days of our lives before a single one of them had been written. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says that the number of hairs on your head is numbered by God, counts them all. Like you can war against the fact that you've got a starting point or you can just rejoice in the fact that your starting point was intentional and masterful by the perfect God who created you. And then just think about all of this 
for a moment. All of who God is, the reality of who we are as created individuals, and ask yourself the question, when did God love me? When I was saved? After I was saved? Before I was saved? Oh, well, you're thinking about time wrong. He's got no succession of moments. So he was fully present at every moment of your life, before your salvation, in your salvation, after your salvation, before you were even born, after you will exist. So when did God love me? Yes. That's the answer. And he will not love a future version of you more, and he does not love a past version of you less. We're created. God is eternal, and we are temporal. That looks like a tombstone because you've got an end point. Just as you had a start, so too do you have a definite end. And we can try our entire lives to shove from our consciousness the reality of that, or we can lean into the grace of not having to have the eternal weight of the universe upon our very temporary shoulders. You're finite. You've got a start and an end. Ecclesiastes chapter one and James chapter four say that life is like a mist or a vapor. It's here for a moment and then it's gone. But our little time there is infused with a purpose. It's the purpose of glorifying God and your tiny little blip on the radar there with the best of your ability, with the help of the Holy Spirit. There's freedom in that. Why? Because you've got a succession of moments over the course of your life. And in every single one of those moments, you don't have to be responsible for all the stuff that's going to happen after you and all the stuff that happened before you. Your purpose is in that succession of moments to say, what does it look like to glorify God here? That's it. Like, give yourself the freedom to have that be the focus. What does that look like for me in this particular moment? And I'll get another moment here in a few moments. And I can ask the question again, what does it look like for me to glorify God? You're created and temporal and also dependent. So there's the arrow back. Now, intuitively, we understand that. Our parents brought us into the world. We're dependent on the food that the earth gives us. We're dependent on the light that the sun gives and on and on and on and on. But at a much deeper level, you're not just dependent upon the natural resources of the earth. You're dependent upon God who sustains them all. We need God for the air that we continue to breathe, for the gravity that holds us on this planet, for the fine-tuning of every one of our cells and every molecule in the universe. And were he to remove his staying hand, all of that would immediately descend into chaos and we would cease to exist. We're dependent upon him. Now zoom in, zoom into our little dot there. We're also finite. That's to say that we're finite in our being. Everything about us has a limit. Your size has a limit. Your mind has a limit. Your length of days has a limit, but your character has limits. Your ability to love has a limit. Your patience has a limit. Your anger has a limit. How do I know? Think of 10 people in your life. Your capacity for patience, which each one of those 10 people is different. Your capacity for patience with your children is different than your capacity for patience with your coworkers. The love you have for your spouse is different than the love you have for the neighbor who just moved in next door one week ago. Like faders on a soundboard. 
but there are limits to all of it. We are only so loving. We are only so patient. Now go with me here for a moment because the intersection of your limits and God's limitlessness have this incredibly beautiful collision point. Everything about you is limited, which, can, which includes your capacity for sin and your capacity for evil. Everything about God is limitless, which includes his capacity to forgive. So, even if you had rebelled to the absolute extremity of your capacity, when you turned by God's grace to face him and receive his grace and mercy and forgiveness, they were nowhere near his end. Like You had bumped into the limit of your ability for sin, but you did not bump into his ability to forgive. He is limitless. We are limited. One last time from A.W. Tozer. However sin may abound, it still has its limits, for it is the product of finite minds and hearts. But God's much moreness introduces us to infinitude. Against our deep creature sickness stands God's infinite ability to cure. His love is measureless. It is more, it is boundless. It has no bounds because it is not a thing, but a facet of the essence of his boundless nature. Last, inside our little dot there, we are changing. At every moment along the way in your life, you are different. Here and here and here and here. A Dutch theologian, Herman Bavink, says it this way, the doctrine of God's unchangeableness is the, height, the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming. Only God is pure being and no becoming. Again, we can fight against the imperfection of our character or we can relax into the grace of an unchanging God. We may be broken and beset by sin, but brother or sister in Christ, thanks to the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to be tomorrow what you are today. You can change. That's a gift of God's grace. I don't know if it's like a flaw in my operating system or what, but I make decisions and then I think that I need to be held to that decision for the entirety of my life. So at 15 years old, I decided I wasn't gonna drink soda. Still haven't. I don't know why. Tim, if you woke up tomorrow and you thought a Dr. Pepper sounded good, you could just drink one. You are not unchanging. You can change. Right, but sometimes we rebel against the limits that we have. We rebel against our being because we want to be, Genesis chapter three, God. But we're not. So here's the whole chart. That's humanity. And it's very different from the chart of what God is like. And all of that leads me to this sort of landing point, that a right understanding of God, the first chart, produces a right understanding of our humanity. And where I want to end this morning is that that gives us a right-sized awe of Jesus. We can get to the end of this exercise of trying to think these deep thoughts and be left with the feeling that we must not matter. We must have no purpose. We must mean almost nothing in the grand scheme of things. And that would be the case. Like This would create existential crisis were it not for the most meaningful moment in all of human history, 
the entrance of the Son of God into the world in human flesh. Because in that moment, he puts this unequivocal stamp and value statement on humanity. How valuable are you? Worth saving. How valuable are you? Worth becoming like you in order to save you. How valuable are you? Worth dying for in order to save. And so how does that whole thing work? Like we had two very different charts. So how is it that uncreated, independent, eternal, infinite, unchanging God, the Son, becomes like us? How does that work? Well, we spend a season every year celebrating the fact that uncreated, independent, eternal, unchanging, infinite God did that. It's Christmas, the incarnation, right? And the historically orthodox way to talk about the incarnation is to say that the Son of God assumed a complete human nature without, any, without surrendering his divinity in any way. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. That's the way we talk about it. It's not that Jesus took the first chart and shoved it to the side and said, give me the second chart. It's that he said, I am the first chart and I am willing to take on all the limitations of the second without surrendering anything about my eternal nature. So think about that for a minute. Jesus is born. Like the eternally begotten son of God makes an entrance into the world the same way you did. What? Now he experiences birth. How incredible is that? And yet, he's not created in that moment. He always has been. Jesus takes on a measure of earthly dependence. For his 33 years, he needs oxygen and sustenance and gravity and food to nourish his body and water to stay hydrated and oxygen in order to keep existing. He's been eternally independent. So the only way we can think about that is as a a succession of moments. And so let yourself think about it. From eternity past, He had never been dependent upon anything. And then he's born as a baby and suddenly, all in one moment, he's dependent for everything. And yet, he's sustaining the gravity that's holding him on the planet. He's maintaining the oxygen that's keeping him alive. He created the materials necessary to build the manger in which they laid him. Tell that to your six-year-old. He takes on a measure of temporal reality. We're told in scripture that in the fullness of time, Jesus was born into the world. The timeless one enters a particular moment and he has a 33-year existence. I've never, he's never been bounded by time before. Like, what is this? I can only, I'm only experiencing one moment at a time. Imagine how disorienting that would be if you weren't God. He takes on a measure of boundary. He can only be in one place. He's fingers and toes that are only so large. And yet he doesn't surrender the infinite nature of his eternal character. His love is still boundless. His grace is still unending. 
his mercy is still infinite. He takes on a measure of changeableness. He has to grow physically, develop emotionally, psychologically. He has to learn intellectually. I mean, think about that. Infinite, uncreated, eternal, unchanging, independent God has to learn how to form the word mama so that he can speak. And when the bigness of God threatens to overwhelm our souls with thoughts of futility, we need only to look at the sun. So I would invite you to pick up your elements. We do this twice a month here, and when we do it on the back end of a sermon, I always like to kind of direct our thoughts into a specific place. So, uncreated, eternal, independent, infinite, unchanging God, Jesus. In humility, takes on the blood that he would spill to wash your sin clean. (laughs) What? Uncreated, eternal, independent, infinite, unchanging God takes on the flesh necessary to be pierced by nails so that you might be saved. We come and we we hold these elements in our hands and I'm human, so I can admit this. I think to myself, man, I'm just really glad it's this wafer and not the COVID wafer because that thing was gross. Rather than thinking, I'm holding in my hands visual representations of the fact that a God whose bigness I cannot comprehend allowed himself to descend into the world and take on all the limitations of humanity. And now I can hold in my hands and taste in my mouth representations of what he was willing to do to save me. I'm a a virtual nothing on that chart. I'm broken and I've got all of my limitations and boundaries and hindrances. And that big, majestic, glorious God said, you're worth saving. I'll do this. It's unthinkable. Brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ. That in humility, he took upon his divinity so that it could be pierced for you and for your transgression that you might be saved. Take and eat in remembrance of him. This is the blood of Christ taken on so that he could spill it for you in order that your sin might be washed spotless and white. Drink in remembrance of him. The good news of all of that is that we can Relish the freedom that there is to be found in laying down the notion that we are God. We're not. And it's a good thing. 
We can just relax into the rest that comes from letting him be him and us be us. We can bring our limitations and smallness to him and delight in the fact that he in all of his splendor and glory would delight to meet us in those places. Our limitations become, can become the doorway into intimacy with God. We can relieve ourselves of the pressure of being God. Until we understand our finite, broken, limited nature, we will fancy ourselves to be the one that the universe depends upon. But that is not true. By recognizing God's bigness and greatness and majesty and wonder and our corresponding smallness, we can come to see in Jesus the means by which infinite, eternal God would be willing to enter into relationship with finite, broken me. We're unwilling to recognize him for who he is and we for who we are. We'll fool ourselves for a lifetime into thinking that we're God until the moment of judgment when we stand before him and see that it was ever only and always him who is God. But by his grace, when we see Jesus, we can have our hearts awakened to the reality that he is who he is and we are who we are. And he took on our limitations to bring us to him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and sing together.